All right. Man, well, that'll get you fired up uh, getting ready to preach. And uh, in the next uh, service, uh, Ryan Myers, uh, one of our other uh, Bayshore kids. Oh, thanks, Justin. <laughs> I forgot. Okay, sorry. I need a pulpit because otherwise I'll be doing this and that'd be difficult. Anyway, uh, Ryan Myers is getting baptized as well. And so we just praise God for how he's at work in our children's and students. Thank you, Justin. And uh, I just want to say this. If you serve regularly in our, like once a month or so, in our Sunday morning or Wednesday night children's ministry in some capacity, would you just stand uh, right now, please? Hey, can we just praise God for those who faithfully serve? Hey, and if, if you serve every week, if you serve every week, if you'll just stay standing for a moment. God, thank you so much for these servants. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. Uh, really, it's a great partnership that exists between uh, our children's ministry and our parents and leading our children to believe in Jesus, belong to God's family, and become who he's created them to be. With that being said, I do need to mention that on Wednesday nights, we're experiencing a lot of growth in our children's ministry. We've been having over 100 uh, fifth grade and below coming, and I'll, I'll tell you, praise God for our high schoolers uh, who are a part of crew, who are serving, and who are just making that uh, so uh, great. Uh, but we do need a few men to help us on Wednesday nights because of the growth in uh, the boys. And so the women are meeting their end of the bargain, no question, men. Um, but there's a gap. And so we need a few men who say, hey, I can come and serve on Wednesday nights with these kids. I'm there uh, 50% of the time. I'd love to serve with you. Uh, and that's on Wednesday nights. Uh, you can email lucas at churchonbayshore.org or you can stop by the boat and let them know you're in. There is an application process, but let's get that started and let's meet this need that God is entrusting us with. Uh, I invite you this morning to open a Bible to Mark chapter 14. As we continue in our series, it isn't over, but it is finished. We're going to read through verse 10 through 21 of Mark chapter 14, and then we're going to talk about some questions that are informational, they're also theological in nature in some ways, and they're pivotal for our walk with Christ. Mark chapter 14, verse 10. It says, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And whatever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, there prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the 12. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Father, I ask you now for your words to speak clearly and loudly to our hearts. 
God, I ask you to speak through me in a way that I decrease and that you increase and that we leave here treasuring you more and obeying you in the ways that your voice is telling us. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the first question I think we need to answer, and we can answer this one somewhat quickly, is who is Judas? The Bible tells us that he is Judas Iscariot. He is the son of Simon Iscariot. Iscariot is a Greek word for karyoth, which is likely a town in southern Judea. So being from southern Judea, um, it's very likely that Judas spoke with a twang in his voice. I'm just kidding. That's not historical or biblical at all. Judas was called as a disciple. He was one of the 12 who were called to follow Jesus. We learn that Judas had a specific role as one of those 12. He was the treasurer. He was in charge of the money that came in. People would give money to support Jesus and his disciples' ministry, and he was, coming, he was in charge of that money who would go out and pay for their expenses. Judas spent three years with Jesus, observing him, seeing what he did, and learning from him. So the next question is, if Judas spent all this time with Jesus, why did Judas betray Jesus? Why did Judas betray Jesus? Well, last week we talked about the story of Mary, the sister of Lazarus, who took a bottle of very costly oil and broke that bottle and used all of that bottle to uh, show her worship for Jesus, to anoint his body for burial. And in John's gospel, we hear Judas's reaction to this act, and we gain insight into why Judas betrayed Jesus. John chapter 12, verse 4 through 6 says, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So Judas is upset that she uses this bottle to anoint Jesus, to show her love for Jesus, because he says that money can be used for a lot of other good things. But the truth is, Judas was actually thinking about the value of that, what it could be sold for, and how he could use it for himself. And something else is going on in the background of Jesus's ministry at the same time. Luke tells us in chapter 22, verse 2 of his gospel, the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him, Jesus, to death. For they feared the people. We have seen this throughout the gospel of Mark. That the chief priests and scribes do not like what Jesus is teaching. And specifically, they do not like the following that he is gaining. And so they've been trying to figure out a way to put a stop to that. And then that escalates to where they want to arrest him and have him killed. So Judas is in this position to gain from the desires of the chief priest and scribes. And Matthew tells us, Matthew chapter 26, verse 15, that Jesus said to them, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. Judas asked, what will you give me for Jesus? 
Judas is in it for Judas. He is in it for himself. It has been suggested that Jesus' decisions were going in the opposite direction of building financial security, and thus, because of that, Judas betrayed Jesus. D. Edmund Eber says, Jesus' failure to set up his earthly kingdom as was expected left Judas deeply disappointed. Jesus' persistent indications that he would die disillusioned Judas. And because of his greed, he made the best of a hopeless situation by betraying Judas, a Jesus, for a price. Judas wasn't deceived into doing this. He wasn't tricked into doing this. He was intent on betraying him. Mark expresses that very clearly in the first two verses we read. Verse 10 says, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Judas consciously goes to the chief priests and scribes to betray Jesus. Then once the agreement is made, he looks for the right opportunity to betray Jesus. Now, how could this happen? I mean, this is considered by many to be the greatest sin in human history. I mean, it is talked about to this day. Even if you're here today or listening online this morning and you're not that familiar with the whole Bible thing, you are familiar with who Judas is. We use Judas as an illustration for people who do wrong and betray. How could this happen? How could Judas betray Jesus? How could this actually happen? Well, the gospel writers under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit explain the spiritual nature and the significance of what's happening here. Luke chapter 22, verse 3 says this. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he considered and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. The word Satan, the name Satan, means adversary, and it is the word that is commonly referred to as the one who is given authority over the things of this world, the powers of this world. And the text tells us that Satan entered into Judas. The word there, entered, is iserme, which means basically he entered in, like someone is entering into a house, going into something. What is clear here, even though we can debate the nuances of what actually is taking place, is that at this time now, Satan is influencing the direction of how this would take place, of how this happened. If you read in John's gospel as well, you see that he also explains that Satan is having his way with Judas now at this point. And there is this partnership here between Judas and what he wants and Satan and what he wants. And this is the partnership that the Bible says exists when we do not submit to God. This is the partnership that the Bible tells us exists when we haven't turned to God. In one of Paul's letters, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, Paul explains this pretty well. He says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, And you 
were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul is writing here to believers and he's explaining to them how they once were and why people who do not trust in God are the way that they are. He says, you are dead in the trespasses and sins. Your sins are building yourself a grave. They are digging yourself a grave. You, as a sinner, are following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air. This is your natural way of living. I love that in his testimony, Graham articulated that what God did in his life wasn't the natural way of thinking. For a nine-year-old to articulate that is pretty impressive, but the reality here is that God's drawing us to himself. He's drawing us away from the flesh. He's drawing us away from trusting in ourselves and to trusting in him. And so when we are not turning to him, when we are not submitted to him, we are living in the ways of this world. We are living in the desires of the flesh. And we are not innocent. And Judas in this story is not innocent. He is not an innocent bystander when Satan enters into him. The text says, then Satan entered into him. After Judas had already decided in his heart what he wanted to do, Satan entered into him. And so there may be forces or spirits or whatever you want to call it that kind of push us and draw us in a certain direction, but we are not innocent bystanders as we go into that direction. James's letter, James chapter 1, verse 13 through 15, explains what happens when we sin. James chapter 1, verse 13 says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, there's a temptation to say, the reason I am the way I am, the reason I am doing the things I'm doing is because it's God's fault, but that's contradictory to the nature of God, but rather, James tells us that we are tempted when there is a desire in our heart and we are lured, there's a trap that entices us. There's a temptation to meet that desire in a way that is not in line with the will of God. And when we do that, it's sin. And we see this in our lives. We might have a desire for things. We might have a greed And that greed has an opportunity for us to live our lives in a way that is not trusting in God financially, with an integrity that is not honoring God in the decisions that we make, and that's sin. We might have a desire as we look at other people to be like them or to be better than them, and then a temptation comes to put them down or to elevate ourselves, and so that leads to sin. We might have a desire in our heart and an opportunity for that desire 
comes to, for it to be satisfied in a way that isn't in God's plan for sexuality or whatever it may be, and that is sin. And ultimately, what this text is telling us is it tells, tells us desire and temptation conceive, and they have a baby, and it's an ugly baby called sin. And it tells us that if that baby continues to grow up, it becomes even uglier. Death. Spiritual death. And that's what happens when we continue building our identity on our desires met in a way that is not in line with the will of God. It brings about spiritual death. And that's why people who give in to what they naturally feel about sexuality without regards for God get to a place where they won't change who they are even for God. That's why people who are filled with covetousness get to a place where they are living their life in a way where they are not experiencing the life that Christ has offered them to live because they are pursuing an image or things and it's enslaved them. And that's why people who are arrogant and who will not humble themselves before God ultimately lead them to a place of ruin and destruction of their lives and others. Our what will you give me, what can I get identity can really cause us to betray the right things. It can cause us to betray our marriage, our spouse, our children, and our friendships. If we are prideful and we do not humble ourselves before God, it ruins marriages, it ruins homes, and it ruins other relationships. If we are greedy, it will lead us in all kinds of places of pain and all kinds of pain for other people. And if we do not submit our sexual desires to the Lord, it can ruin homes and marriages and other relationships. And ultimately, we don't submit to God and we've broken our relationship with God. Judas has a desire. And here comes an opportunity for that desire to be fulfilled. Apart from God. This led Judas to sin. And then Satan enters into Judas and it carries itself out the way we see it carry itself out. Now something you need to understand here. Because we tend, especially with kind of our, our narrative that we've had in the last 30 years in our country to look at everybody in the Bible and, and kind of victimize them. Jesus said very clearly, when he's accused of being possessed by a demon, being of Satan, he says a house divided itself against itself cannot stand. He's saying, hey, when God takes over someone, he comes in and he ties up the strong man and he, he sets him free. And he's the only one there. When believers tell me they're possessed by a demon or Satan's entered into them, I would just tell you that is not in line with the teaching of Jesus. And so either you just need to be real and, hey, you're sinning, you want to sin, stop blaming other people for your sin. Or maybe you've never really come to a place of surrender in Christ Jesus. And what we see take place in the, the days to come in Judas's life is sorrow over what happens, but not true repentance. I believe, in accordance with the teaching of Jesus and what the text tells us about Satan entering into Judas, that Judas was not indeed a follower of Jesus. And what we see here is not about an instance, it's about an identity. Now, I think perhaps what you would then ask 
if you're really thinking about this with an honest approach, is how could God let this happen? How could God let this happen? Because God knew this was going to happen. Back to our text this morning, Mark chapter 14, verse 16 through 18, Mark says, the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as Jesus had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the 12. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And Mark's a good writer. He's, he's explaining, Jesus gave them instructions and told them what they would see. Jesus knew what was gonna happen. And then Jesus says what's gonna happen in Judah. So Jesus clearly at this point in his earthly life is understanding how the plan of God is going to unfold. He knew. And he goes on to say at the end of our text this morning in verse 20 and 21, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the son of man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. See, it is God's plan that this would happen. If you read throughout the, the events taking place in these days in the Gospels, we see that Jesus refers to his rejection, quoting Psalm 118, verse 22. Have you never read that the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? He quotes Psalm 35, 19, saying, they've hated me without a cause. He references Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, saying that I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, referring to the disciples. His being pierced with the spear is a reference to Psalm 34 and Zechariah 12. Zechariah 11 and Jeremiah 19 reference the prices of 30 pieces of silver in exchange for a field that Matthew 27 shows us is indeed what happens. And Jesus says additional things from the Old Testament and predicts more things that come true. Whenever Peter preaches the gospel to those in Jerusalem, and it's recorded in Acts chapter 2, he says this, verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It is very clear that what would happen to Jesus was God's plan. And God spoke it and it had been written down for hundreds of years and it was fulfilled in Christ. Why did God want this to happen? Isaiah, the prophet, tells us, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. God saw the crushing of Christ because his soul made an offering for the guilt so that we could be children of God. And his days are prolonged for eternity. And his prosperity and those who are in him will be recipients of that prosperity for all of eternity. God wanted this to happen because God is for us. In Genesis, God makes that clear when he says that he made us in his image. And in the person of Christ, the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. And it is very clear 
in Christ that God is for us. Romans 8, 31, verse 32, who, if God is for us, who shall be against us? If God did not spare his own son, how will he not with, us, with him graciously give us all things? God is showing us, revealing to us that he is for us. So then again, if we're honest, I think there is something that we wrestle with here at some point in our lives, and it's this. If this was God's plan, if God knew this was going to happen, how is Judas guilty? If God knew this was going to happen, how is Judas guilty? Or for that matter, how are any of us guilty if God is in charge and knows what's gonna happen and his plan and his will is going to happen. And there are theological positions that hold to this, some various forms of universalism that essentially teach, hey, we're all going to heaven. But what I would suggest to you is that it is compatible that God knows what is going to happen, that God's plan is going to happen, and that Judas and all of us are still guilty. Jesus says in verse 21, this very clearly, he says, for the son of man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Jesus says, God's will is going to happen for me. And at the same time, Judgment and woe to the man who that is going to happen through. Now, how could God know this is going to happen and allow Judas to live this life and all these things? This is one of the great tensions for us and our finite ability to understand God and his will that we wrestle with. In Romans chapter 9, which is perhaps one of the most perplexing texts to many in the New Testament, Paul says this. He says, what if God made vessels of wrath prepared beforehand for destruction? Now, Paul doesn't say God made vessels of wrath prepared beforehand for de destruction, but he says, what if he did? And then he goes on to say, who are we to question God? How can the clay say to the potter, I don't like what you did? We have forgotten who we are in this situation. You need to understand something very clearly. God would be totally just in sending every person who ever lived and sinned to hell. I love that when we met with Graham in his house and we talked about what it means to be a Christian and I asked Graham, I said, I hope you don't mind me doing this, buddy. I said, hey, if you get to heaven and God says, why should I let you into heaven? What would your answer be? And Graham said, you shouldn't. And I was like, yes, because he gets it. He gets that we don't go to heaven because we were born awesome and deserve some awesomeness or we've done something or because the country we live in. We go to heaven because of God's grace. He is holy. We don't deserve his holiness. And it is by his grace that we get to experience eternity with him or even breath on earth. And so don't lose sight of something here. Judas rebels against God. 
There is rejection of God. I, I want you to think about Satan, okay? And again, we are confused about some things about Satan, but Satan is this, this representative who God's given temporary authority in, to a degree to kind of oversee you know, the, the powers of this world and the things that happen in evil. And Satan is a finite being, and Satan like keeps living the way he's living even though he knows how it ends. Because it's who he is, it's his identity. And so then what Satan does, we see working in the Bible, is he tries to do everything he can to destroy as many people as possible with him on the way. We see him trying to, you know, derail Jesus from the plan of God in Matthew 4, but Jesus is in nature God and trust in the word of God. And then we see that when Peter doesn't agree with the plan of God, right after he confesses Jesus Christ is, you know, the rock, He's the Christ. And he says, no you, can't, no, you can't die, Jesus. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Because now Peter's thinking not with God's idea, but he's thinking with the worldly ideas. But Judas goes through with this. Judas is guilty. Yes, maybe God allowed Satan to enter into Judas and do this in a way that fit God's plan to bring the most glory to God, but there is guilt on Judas's hands. I, you know, I think a lot about my middle school and high school years, and I was really good at doing something wrong and then finding out that convenient circumstances aligned with my doing something wrong that I could easily deflect from the fact that I was actually doing something wrong and point to others who were at fault or other situations. If you're driving your vehicle and you are distracted while driving, whether you're under the influence or texting or doing something else and someone else happens to do something wrong, you were still doing something wrong. And hear my heart. If your parents didn't raise you the way they should or treated you poorly or the circumstances of your life were unfortunate, you are still responsible for the choices you make. And listen, we can fool people and today it is so easy to play the victim and excuse our actions and we can, we can be slick and sleazy like I was in middle school but let me make something very clear. God sees every centimeter of your wicked heart. Nothing escapes God. And he sees in his holiness how short you fall of God. And no one else answers for the life you chose to live to him except for you and what you did with where you are. And so when we talk about all these things, and they can be complicated, theological, I think some of us want to dig more into these things. Some of us are satisfied. We've already did the digging, or we're just good. We're good. We don't need to know more. God's grace. Some of you could care less. But here's a question all of us need to ask this morning. The last question. Is it I? Is it I? When Jesus said, someone is going to betray me, in verse 14, it says, the disciples began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, is it I? Now, they're in the upper room with Jesus. 
but they all knew what they were capable of doing. Once again, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 3 says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It's interesting that the question they ask is, is it I? And then the next thing we hear Judas asking is, how much will you give me? He's in it for him. This isn't the story of an instance. It's the story of an identity. And being a sinner isn't about an instance. It's about an identity. It was clear that Judas was not going to get the life he wanted out of Jesus. And so he betrayed him. And this seems so shocking and so awful but I wonder how many people, perhaps even in this room today or watching online this morning, profess belief in Jesus and maybe even get baptized and sing songs about Jesus and who he is while really betraying Jesus. We're often too concerned with what we want and when we realize Jesus isn't going to give us what we want, we look to other things and we say, what will you give me if I betray these aspects of Christianity? And ultimately, if I betray Jesus. Betraying Jesus is about submitting to something else as master when God isn't giving us what we expected. It's saying God did not give me the life that I was hoping he would give me. And so my loyalty is not to him, trusting in him to give me the life that he knows I need, but rather I think I need differently. And so I will sell him for 30 pieces of silver or more financial freedom in my eyes or the ability to do whatever I want to do and raise my kids the way I want to raise them, or whatever it may be, this moment of sexuality, whatever it may be, it's saying, I don't trust in God, and so I'm going to let something else be my master. And we deceive ourselves into thinking that we can have two masters, but Jesus said we can't. So I think there are two truths that change everything for us this morning based on what we've read. It's this, number one, God has complete authority. God is in control. God is powerful. His plan is going to happen. And number two, God is for you. God has complete authority. And in that complete authority, we see the definite plan of God according to his foreknowledge for Christ to be crucified on our behalf so that we might become his offspring and prosper with him. God is for you, for your best interest, and that is most clearly evident in Jesus. So seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And as we talked about last week, we don't live for him because we think he's going to give us things. We live because what we've received from him. I've read Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 3 twice, how we are dead in our trespasses, living according to the ways of this world. But here's what Paul goes on to say to the believers in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 through 10. And we'll let this be our closing meditation. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, 
made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's the life that God has called us to as his people. Once dead in our trespasses, made alive in Christ Jesus. What is your goal for your life? What is it that you are living to accomplish? What is your joy? What is your hope? What is, what is it that you are longing for? I've been at several funerals lately, and, you know, the queen's death is on the news, and I've seen a lot of depictions about what heaven could be and what we should anticipate and long for in heaven and what the Christian longs for in heaven is for that song that we sang just a moment ago, I need thee every hour to ring truer and truer every day. What I need is Jesus. I pray today for all of you this morning that that would be your response. Jesus, do the works you prepared to do in me. I turn to you. I submit to you because you have authority and you are for me. Pray with me. God, I pray that if there's someone here today who is aware that they're guilty, they're a sinner, and their identity is built on sin. They're not sinning once in a while. That's the direction of their life. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, you came. You died for us. Lord, may we die to ourself, trusting and placing our faith and hope in you and experience the resurrection of your kindness. As Christians, may we respond to you and your grace and your love with a life of service. Even as we sing in just a moment, may we not be thinking about what's next. May, may we treasure you. And after we sing, may we live lives showing you as our treasure. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.